Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, will tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us on our recent episodes as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. It's been so much fun. I mean, we're stuck at home, most of us. We can't get out and actually walk the battlefields. So doing it in this virtual sense has been really quite a great experience. And joining me on that great experience is my good friend, Peter Smith. Pete, welcome back. Hey, Matt. Thank you very much. Good to be back with you. Looking forward to this one, mate. We're heading back to the Somme, which is a favourite place for both you and I. And this one's not too far from your backyard. It's not an area that I know particularly well. I've done this walk a few times, but I haven't spent a lot of time in this area. Just tell us a little bit about the walk we're doing today through the Somme. Well, I can actually see the the end point of the walk, which is the New Zealand Memorial uh, up on the ridge behind uh, my house. Uh, but we're going to start from uh, Caterpillar Valley Cemetery in the heart of the of the Somme battlefield. And it's really this is the second phase of of the Somme. It's the second big push of the of the Somme battle. Um, so there's things going on all around us. We could do a different talk on each of these little little kind of uh, cameos that we're going to talk about in general. But we're going to start uh, in the cemetery and chat about its connection to the New Zealanders, really, because Caterpillar Valley Cemetery is a, a really important location or the location surrounding it to the New Zealand division fighting on the Western Front. Well, let's talk a little bit about our Kiwi brothers because they get a little bit overlooked in the whole scheme of things. I always say that it's probably the, the New Zealanders are probably the only people who, who don't claim that their sole division won the war. I mean, uh, the, the Australians and the Canadians and the Americans, we all talk about how we won the war. Uh, the New Zealanders are the only ones humble enough not to say that. Um, but, uh, you know, a really strong fighting force throughout the war, weren't they? Obviously, they started at Gallipoli and then came over to the Western Front, as did the Australians. But just, again, some pretty tough fighters, the, the blokes from New Zealand. 
Yeah, absolutely. And here is where they're going to get their first real blooding, I suppose, uh, rather horrifically. Um, this is the first divisional attack for New Zealand, and it's uh, it's going to take place in that the landscape that we can see from here. And hence, it's seen as so important that this is where eventually their unknown soldier will be removed from. More of that a little later. Well, let's begin the walk. Where are we going to start? You mentioned Caterpillar Valley, Caterpillar Valley Cemetery, which is a you know, a cemetery I really like. As I said, I haven't been there many times, but the times I've been there, I thought it was really lovely. Um, let's talk about that cemetery. Well, it's, it's the, the reason that we don't go there that often is because it's right in the heart of the Somme battlefield and you're kind of going from A to B and you tend to drive past it, describing very quickly what it is, but it, it's certainly worth uh, stopping and having a look at. Mainly because of its location, it's a, a concentration cemetery, so it's, it's a large cemetery. In fact, it's the second largest cemetery on the Somme battlefield. So it's a, it's a big old cemetery and the views from it are quite spectacular because you're on the top of the ridge beside the village of Longueval. So uh, great views. So let's just describe what we can actually see from it, because it is important to, to, to look around it. So if we're looking back on the main road which goes past it, well, it's not a main road, it's a little country rural road, and it, uh, it was really running uh, from uh, Bapaume uh, to Albert, and it's not the main road. The main road almost parallels it, and the main road is a straight road, it's a Roman road. This is a little bit more windy. And so if we're looking towards, uh, along the road, from the cemetery, from the front of the cemetery, uh, towards Albert, then what we can see straight away is, is the Byzantine woods. Very important. And in fact, the fighting that takes place on this site is part of uh, the Byzantine Ridge uh, fighting that takes place on the 14th of July in 1916. So we can see those woods. Uh, we can then see a little cemetery, a Thistle Dump Cemetery, which is a, a dump cemetery, which means it's it's really it's a frontline cemetery, a battlefield cemetery. It's also one of those changeover points where supplies were dropped off and picked up by the infantry and also the wounded were, were uh, the swap-over point from the stretcher bearers, bringing them from the front line and the RAMC moving them further back. So a little cemetery, That's we can see that from here. Then we can see the a very, very famous site, High Wood. Uh, High Wood uh, is a location that for a lot of people that walk this landscape and uh, walk around here and, and research this area fills you with that, that un, uncomfortable feeling, really, for the number of dead within the wood. Estimated to be between eight and 10,000 soldiers still within the wood, unrecovered. It's a, a really a really place that makes you, you shudder. Um, sadly, we can't go in the wood. We can only w walk around it. Uh, and today, that's not going to be part of our walk, but it's certainly something that overlooks most of our walk. We can see it for most of the walk. So that's high wood. Then moving along round, uh, we look across the battlefield, now open fields, of course, and we can see then the New Zealand Memorial, and that's where we're heading to. So from, from this location within the cemetery, Caterpillar Valley Cemetery, we can see where we're going to finish the walk at the New Zealand Memorial. So that's up on the ridge, uh, standing out. In fact, stands out a lot more than it used to. It had trees right the way around it till uh, a couple of years ago, and they removed the trees, and now it's uh, it's back to as a, I think the architects envisaged that it should stand alone, and so we can see that. Looking further round, we hit the village itself of Longueval, and behind that village, we can see uh, ha uh, Delville Wood, another very, very famous, again, another podcast in its own right we can do about Delville Wood and the New Zealand's uh, New Zealand 
um, sorry, the South Africans fighting through the wood uh, along with with the Scottish uh, uh, soldiers uh, within the same division. So uh, very, very uh, important for uh, South Africa. And in fact, the whole wood is the memorial to South Africa. So it's a very important one, but we'll do that in a separate uh, podcast. So and then moving round uh, from Longerval, we can see two more woods, Bernafe Wood and Trones Wood. And then after them, uh, we get the village of Montauban, uh, Montauban du Picardy, uh, very famously. And this one was taken, this village was actually taken on the 1st of July. And then we see uh, Caterpillar Valley. We can't quite see it, but we get the, the idea of where the valley is. And that's also interesting to a lot of people. They think that the valley to the front of the cemetery, looking towards uh, Highwood, that is Caterpillar Valley. It's not, it's behind the cemetery, it's Caterpillar Valley. And that's where the artillery is going to be based later on when the fighting moves across to uh, to Flair. Um, sometimes known as Death Valley as well, but I prefer to use the term Caterpillar Valley. So that's the views from the cemetery. Peter, it's a fascinating area of the Somme uh, where we're standing here. And, and as you say, from, the, from really that second phase of the Somme fighting, which is something that gets very overlooked, I think, in the history. The vast majority of people would know about the first day on the Battle of the Somme. And we forget that, don't we? That this battle stretched on for four months and there were lots of stages and there was toing and froing. And at times the Germans had the upper hand, and at times we had the upper hand. But eventually it sort of dragged its way to November. It's it's important we remember the just the the length and the complexity of the Battle of the Somme, isn't it? It is. And this is a very important day. In fact, you could argue, well, I think I think very, very rightly you could argue, that this date, the 14th of July in 1916, of course, the Battle of the Somme starting on the 1st of July, the 14th is more important because this is where we start to change the tactics which will eventually bring success. So this is the very first night attack takes place. This is the first time that um, a sudden barrage, a very, very heavy barrage, not a pro- prolonged barrage so a hurricane bombardment takes place and then we get the creeping barrage the first time that the creeping barrage is going to be used so this is those innovations that are slowly going to to bring that success eventually this is where they start so it's a, it's a very important action uh, and, and successful that the, the initial attacks were very successful it's the counterattacks the german counterattacks that are going to be the problem just explain for those of us who don't know the uh, the concept of the creeping barrage because it's vital in this and in later fights on the western front yeah, the, the creeping barrage is instead, what we did on the 1st of July, we bombarded the German positions, we bombarded an area of no man's land, but when the attack take place, takes place, then the, the barrage of the German positions lifts and it moves further back to take out their second line defences, to take out road junctions, in other words, to stop the Germans reinforcing their front line, but the physical bombardment of the front line stops. And what it becomes effectively then is a race. It's a race, Do the can the Germans get up from underground and mount their machine guns before we get to them? And effectively, that's why the 1st of July, among other reasons, but that's why the 1st of July failed, because the Germans successfully did. Um, a creeping barrage basically starts in front of the infantry in no man's land. It protects the infantry as they climb out of their trenches, and then it moves forward, in theory, at the same speed that they are advancing. Now, at this early stage of the creation of these barrages, that was the problem, trying to judge how fast to move that barrage forward, protecting the soldiers in front of them and how close do the soldiers uh, need to be to be protected. And there's a lot that needs to be adjusted. But effectively, the barrage moves forward with the infantry. That's a great description. Thank you, Pete. Um, and t- talk to us a little bit about the cemetery that we're standing in, because you're right, it's in a really important point. It, it's a, it's a really a, a pivotal point of the battlefield, and I think the burials and the, the nature of the cemetery reflects that fighting that occurred in the area. 
Yeah, well, the cemetery itself uh, was uh, designed by Herbert Baker. It, it's it's big. It's a typical concentration cemetery in the sense that there's no randomness about this cemetery. It is straight lines of graves uh, go, going uh, backwards and forwards across it. It's surrounded by uh, a wall, a rubble wall, uh, capped with uh, coping stones. But what's also interesting, to one side, so if you're entering through the, the entrance as an archway, and look to your left, there's a high wall. And that is also the memorial to the New Zealand missing. They are across there on that high, on that high wall. We'll just talk about them in a little while. The numbers that we have here, so 5,573 burials here or commemorations here. And of that, now this is again one of those horrific aspects of the First World War, 3,798 of those that are buried here, we don't know who they are. And that gives you an indication that this is a concentration cemetery. In other words, as they recovered and found the bodies, as they're clearing the battlefields, they will bring them in here. But sadly, an awful lot of them from those figures obviously confirm that an awful lot were unable to be identified. So we have an awful lot of unknown in this cemetery. And um, th- that effort to bring people in, the, the, I mean, it's something, again, that's overlooked. We, we talked about it in some detail in our podcast on living history about the cemeteries. But just that, even the, even just that concept, the concentration of graves, the bringing in of graves. I mean, that, that that sums up years and years of work and effort, and often quite ghastly work and effort to create those cemeteries. Uh, it, it does indeed, and and this cemetery also uh, incorporates several smaller cemeteries that were closed down and uh, and moved into here as well. But the recovery of the bodies, I mean, it's something that we we cover quite often. But uh, because it is it is just fascinating in my in my view but the recovery of the bodies was very very difficult here and in fact it's always worthwhile if you can get a look at it and i think it's available online nowadays it wasn't available for many years but i think i think you can you can find it online now is the the imperial war graves uh, uh, map of effort and what what they effectively did they gridded up the the western fronts where the fighting had taken place where the burials were and they counted the burials uh, in a grid square now you'll have to forgive me i cannot remember what uh, what she, what each grid grid square is what the distance is it'll be in in yards so let's say a thousand yards but i don't know i can't remember off the top of my head and within each 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 square there is a number and you can see this you can uh, have a look at it and it's numbering this area especially it's it's fascinating and and that's where you can see a problem there are no numbers for a high wood where all of these guys are we have an estimate of how many guys may be missing within the wood but in the other areas it's fascinating to have a look at and to see where the concentrations are and of course when you know the battlefields and you understand the battlefields then you realize that obviously where the concentrations of dead are going to be is where the heaviest fighting took place so it, it is a very important and interesting uh, map to have a look at it's called the map of effort uh, by the imperial war graves of course now the commonwealth war graves when you look at answers like, uh, areas like the um the Eber salient where there was a huge amount of fighting and a lot of bodies that were missing um that those maps of effort are absolutely extraordinary so you know, as i recall in some squares there's seven or eight hundred bodies recovered from a particular square some there's 50 some there's 60 but in other ones where there's heavy fighting there could be up to 800 bodies recovered from a square, it's just mind-boggling the the numbers of, of dead that were just left on the battlefield after the war. It is. Of course, they're also counting the number of people in existing cemeteries. So occasionally the numbers are very high because there is already a cemetery there. Now, whether that cemetery will remain there or whether they will actually lift all of those guys and move them is down to the to the recovery teams. And also, you have to say, down to the French to deciding what is going to stay in uh, in its location, what needs to be moved. I mean, you must you must understand this is farmland, and we couldn't uh, you know we couldn't leave all of these bodies everywhere, or else we would have a lot 
lot more smaller cemeteries scattered everywhere, uh, and this land would not have been able to be returned uh, to the, to the French and to to the farming. Well, let's talk about that uh, New Zealand memorial that you mentioned, because they're always fascinating when you come across the New Zealand memorials. The New Zealanders, as we've mentioned before, had a different way of remembering their missing. So let's talk about that New Zealand memorial. Yeah, so the memorial itself is a is a, a rubble wall, and then with the inset with the panels and their Jurassic limestone, as a lot of the memorials are. In fact, I think all the memorials are Jurassic limestone, uh, engraved with the names of the 1,211 uh, soldiers who are missing for this area, uh, and that's that's the important thing. This is not all the New Zealanders missing. This is very particularly for the fighting that took place around this area, um, and uh, and they are commemorated on the on the wall. Now, just to also add another little thing of interest, in in that period between the creation of the wall and now, of course, New Zealanders have been found, and in some cases they've been identified. So have their names been taken off this wall? And the answer is no, they haven't. Uh, they made a decision not to deface the wall by chiselling out the names of those that had been recovered and, and found and now have a burial location. So so the, the 1,211 men, if you went and counted all the names, it wouldn't actually quite match up because some of those have actually uh, uh, have been found. Some of the men have been found that are on the wall. I love this, uh, this, this doctrine that the New Zealanders had after the war to remember their, their, their missing in very specific areas. It wasn't how other countries did it. Australia remembers our missing at Villas Bretno and, and other places. The, the British obviously have some huge memorials to the missing in a number of key locations. Uh, but the New Zealanders chose to remember their missing in the areas where those men fell. I think it's a really lovely sentiment for the for the missing soldiers. I, I do as well, and it's normally tied uh, to also to a memorial, and that's where we're going to be walking to. So as well as having the memorial to the missing and the listing of the missing, then there is also a, a memorial close by as well, uh, an obelisk commemorating their effort in that area. Are there any famous uh, famous men or notable men on this uh, on this memorial, the the New Zealand memorial? Well, they all should be remembered equally, but as you know, that uh, we we tend to uh, highlight people uh, that are that are commemorated on the walls or, in fact, buried here. And in fact, we have uh, a chap called uh, Bobby uh, Stanley Black to give him his full name, uh, Robert Black, and he was uh, a rugby player and he played in the final test before the war against Australia in 1914 on the the tour to Australia. He was 20 years old, and sadly, he's one of the missing. So he's actually on the wall. Not he hasn't got a grave here, um, and he was killed in action on the 20. First of September, so very close to my village. We've been fighting around the, my village of Flares, which is over the ridge. We will see from the final stance when we stand at the memorial to the New Zealanders, we, we look down upon uh, where I live. Um, so he was killed uh, in the vicinity of the village. And there, there is a report that his body was recovered at, at one period. Um, and this would be the period in 1917 when the Germans fell back. But of course, the Germans are going to retake all of this area. So an awful lot of graves were lost yet again as the fighting crossed over this area in 1918 twice more and and that's one of the other big problems and why we have so many missing here because the fighting will return here in 1918. And let's talk about um, the unknown soldier because a fascinating story again this idea of the unknown soldier and particularly the Commonwealth countries and our efforts decades after the war to uh, to bring home soldiers from the battlefields. Let's talk about the New Zealand unknown soldier. Well, it's interesting. Before we talk about him, we really have to talk about uh, about the unknown soldier that lies in Westminster Abbey, because you have to kind of think. And I, I, I need, for years, yet I, I did wonder why is it taken so long for Canada, New Zealand, Australia to to bring back an unknown soldier uh, and take him back to to his home country. 
And the reason being is because that, that, and we know he's a British soldier, that soldier that was in Westminster Abbey, because the connection between the old empire and Britain was so strong, it was felt that that was enough, that the, the unknown soldier that was in Westminster Abbey and still lies obviously in Westminster Abbey, that he represented all of our soldiers, and that meant all the soldiers of the empire. So it's an interesting aspect that really it's, it, it took until fairly modern times before New Zealand, uh, Australia and Canada decided that they needed their own unknown soldier uh, to be taken back and to be revered within, within his own country. Um, and so I'll just give you the dates because it, it's quite interesting. So the British unknown soldier, and there's been an awful lot in the press just recently because we've just uh, passed the centenary, um, 1920, he was taken to Westminster Abbey and buried there in 1920. America followed that trend, interestingly. Uh, we, we don't very often mention the Americans during the First World War, but uh, they're obviously here um, for, the, uh, for the, la- the, last, the latter parts of the war. 1921, they took their unknown soldier back to America. Uh, Australia next, 1993, so 75 years uh, uh, taken back to Australia. Canada, 2000, 82 years, and New Zealand in 2004. So it's in the time that I was here. I came here in 2004 and I was here when they exhumed and lay in state at the memorial before he was uh, taken back to to New Zealand. So 90 years uh, uh, after the war. What's your thoughts about this um, this sort of flurry of removal of bodies in the the nineties and two thousands, Pete? Because well, before I before I hang you out to dry on that one, I'll give you my impressions on it. Because when the when the whole thing was going on with the Australian soldier, a number of people and I kind of joined them, even though I was quite young at the time. A number of people, myself included, felt that the removal of a soldier who'd lain next to his mates in a cemetery for seventy five years and then shipped back to Australia was a little bit callous towards that soldier, and there was a real feeling that. We're always uncovering unknown soldiers on the battlefield. Why don't we wait until we find one on the battlefield and then take him back to Australia? And so um, it was a little bit controversial. I've kind of softened my views a little bit since then because it is such a focus of the the Hall of Memory at the Australian War Memorial in in Canberra. Um, But what's your opinion about this, about Commonwealth countries taking soldiers back decades after the fighting? I think it's interesting, isn't it? I I think you have to... um... I, I'm in agreement with you overall, but I think what's interesting is is why why was it suddenly felt for Australia that 90 years after the war it, it, it was necessary? Well, you need two things: you need the will of the government because there's a cost implication, uh, uh, and you need the will of the people. And I think it shows the the, the independent spirit of the old Commonwealth, uh, well, the Commonwealth, the Empire, uh, and the Empire countries as they became Commonwealth uh, countries and and uh, and slowly become more and more independent. And so. I'm the same with you. I, th- I think it was. Uh, I think perhaps it was the right thing to do. And, and certainly, when you go to the War Memorial in Canberra in Australia and look where he's now buried, you, you would swear that the place was built around him. And of course, it wasn't. He was added to an existing building. So it's interesting. And, and you could almost do the same at the, the shrine in Melbourne. You get the feeling that the, the, that there was always a place for, for taking the unknown uh, unknown warrior to the shrine in Melbourne. And of course, it, it, it's not. It's these places were created to focus memory and to focus loss and for you to go and have some quiet time when you remembered your soldier who was still all that way in, in, in Europe. Um, but I think it was important that they were, they were returned. But I do actually agree with you. I think it, I always felt slightly uncomfortable. And you can't not but feel uncomfortable that these guys had a final resting place. And it's interesting. I mean, it is one of the big no-nos of the 
the Commonwealth War Graves, they will not exhume under any circumstances a soldier of the Great War who, is be, who has been buried and is within the confines of a, of a, a, a cemetery, a Commonwealth War Grave cemetery. Um, and that's why we have the problems, even if we think we know who a soldier is, and we can almost prove it. It has to be 100% proved by documentation because we will not dig down and take a, which we could do now, of course, take a DNA sample and, and, and prove whether it's him or not. Um, so I think it's, it, it was uh, important that it should be done, but it, it did leave me and still does feeling a little uncomfortable about it. But I think, it's, I think it was important for those countries, for Australia, Canada and New Zealand to have their own unknown soldiers. The unknown soldier from uh, Adelaide Cemetery at Villas Bretno, the Australian unknown soldier, there is a headstone marking that, that the unknown soldier was removed from a particular grave. There is a headstone now in that grave telling the story effectively. Uh, is it the same in the uh, for the New Zealand soldier? It is. It's exactly the same. So we can go to the site of where he was exhumed from and there is a headstone basically explaining the story and when he was exhumed. Well, it's an interesting one. I think um, if, if if you're listening to this, uh, please send us your views on it because it is controversial. And obviously it's, it, it's, it's something that's very important to people. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people every year pay their respects, millions of people at, the, at these tombs. Um, but also I think when you stand there at the grave site and you're standing in the fields of France near where these people fell and you're seeing unknown soldiers from, from all over the place and then you just see this sort of empty grave, it does feel a little bit, I'll be honest, I think it feels a little bit political to me that it was a good move politically for governments at the time to, to be waving the, uh, the Anzac flag. Um, but, uh, but again, I, I don't want to be too controversial. It's, just, it's, it's important we have these discussions. Well, I should I should add that this cemetery is in fact still an open cemetery in that sense that it still takes burials. And only a few years after the unknown soldier was exhumed, then a New Zealand soldier was also buried in the cemetery as an unknown soldier. So that kind of ties in with what you were saying, really, Matt, that, that why didn't they wait? But of course, you don't know. But why didn't they wait and, rem- and take him back home and have him, um, have him buried uh, uh, within the country? Um, so, yes, so it's interesting. It is still an open cemetery. They are still taking burials here. Well, send us your thoughts. If you're listening to this and you've got thoughts about unknown soldiers and whether they should be brought back, send us, send us your thoughts via Twitter and Facebook and, uh, and uh, it'll give us more, uh, more food for discussion for later on. But moving on, Pete, where are we heading to next on the walk? Well, we're going to head towards Longueval because we're going to walk through Longueval. And that's, it's a very short walk, this, by the way, as, as, we, could, uh, as we described. You can actually see where you're, where you're heading. So we're just going to walk down the, the road a little bit more. And we're going to talk about new memorials. So as we're walking along, we can see a cross on our left-hand side on a little small road junction. And it's a wooden cross up on the bank. And it's actually reproducing a cross that had been here in the 1930s. Um, we don't exactly know when it was lost, but at some period, probably in the Second World War, because a lot of the, the memorials, the private memorials that had been looked after of course the the old soldiers couldn't get across to look after them any longer and a lot of them deteriorated and this one being a wooden cross it certainly deteriorated um but a very good friend of mine called dean marks um uh, who lives uh, very close to bristol he was very keen that this should be re- replaced and so uh, he organized uh, with his family his family were also very keen that it should be replaced and on the 9th of april in 1986 then they had a ceremony and they replaced inauguration of a replacement cross and that cross has now been replaced again because it rotted through and uh, we have a, a newer version of it. 
And so, and on it goes. So we have a, a, a now a new memorial commemorating, but it's replicating exactly what had been here before, commemorating the 12th Battalion of the Gloucestershire Regiment, um, who were uh, based or, or who had been recruited in the the area of Bristol, very very often known as Bristol Zone. So, in other words, the people of Bristol raised this battalion. It comes under that overall banner of PALS battalions. These these battalions, a thousand men, raised to fight for the empire uh, from the, the, the cities of, of Britain. It really makes you wonder, Pete, if you'd come to the battlefields in the 20s or 30s, how many memorials would have been around that are, have long since vanished that we that we probably have no record of as well? It's very interesting because there's a very good New Zealand connection here beyond our village. So right on the far side of the New Zealand fighting of this period in 1916 is where they originally put their memorial. Um, and it was known as the New Zealand Cross. Now, it became fairly obvious as we're clearing the battlefields that this was not in a particularly good location. It wasn't a particularly well made. It was a wooden cross again. And it was decided to actually to to remove it. And the Imperial Wargraves is something that I've always found, and I think I've actually already mentioned it perhaps in a previous podcast, but I always find it very moving. And it was actually uh, uh, burnt by the, the uh, Imperial Wargraves, and then the ashes of that cross were spread on the graves of New Zealand soldiers in the area. Um, and then this, this obelisk that we're walking to was was built on the top of the ridge to, repl- to replace it. So there's an element of, I think it's quite sad that it wasn't put in its original location, but it is a much better location up on, on, on the ridge. Well, as we're walking along, we come to another memorial, Pete, and um, again, a few little areas of controversy on this walk. <laughs> Tell us about the next memorial we come to. This one is a very controversial. In fact, it was suggested, one of, one of my friends, uh, I was speaking to him this morning, and he suggested, why don't you do a podcast on controversial memorials? And we've already mentioned it in one of our podcasts, the uh, uh, the windmill site, uh, the Australian site at the windmill of Poissiers, and what's going on there. Well, this is an, another memorial that suddenly appeared. It, 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 it's, it's odd how it happens. Obviously, little debates and, and discussions and perhaps money changes hands. Uh, I don't know. Very often, the French actually give the land, the land uh, freely, and I think they did in this case. And this is a memorial to the Indian uh, soldiers who, who fought here, or fought anywhere, really, in on, in France on the, the Western Front. Um, but it's a very unusual memorial. I, I don't even know how to begin to describe it, really. It's it's four or five chaps. I think you'll have to go online and put Indian Memorial at Longueval if you want to have a look at what it looks like. And it's four chaps. It's almost childishly designed. It's cast in bronze. It was made in Mumbai in India. Um I don't dislike it, I have to say, because I think it's of their culture. It's something that the people that designed it and casted it had an idea of what it was to look like. And it represents all of the different religions that were fighting within the Indian army at the time. So it's it's uh, on the top of a large uh, plinth um, to the right as we're walking towards Longval. It's on the corner of the road. And it is it is fairly... Obvious, you cannot miss it, but it's not to everybody's taste. You have to say it's uh, it's certainly there's been quite some derogatory terms in the press in the UK, and I even found a couple of articles in the Indian press that also were not too uh, too too impressed with it. But I don't dislike it. I think it tells a story in its own right about a people that want a memorial that is of their culture, that looks of of their culture. Um, but it's a big memorial, and it's commemorating the Indians. So the thing you have to ask is, knowing that the Indian Army. Um, 
And, uh, of course, that's something else to explain. The Indian Army, by this period, had, had mainly left the infantry. Uh, by 1916, they'd been moved to Mesopotamia and, in fact, were fighting in, in Mesopotamia. It was felt that that's, that would suit them rather than the terrible winter they had in 1914-15. So we only have uh, a small elements of, of infantry and some cavalry units. And here we are actually looking down, to, when we look across to uh, High Wood, that's where on the 14th that we get one of the very few charges that take place it's the Deccan horse um, who are charging across towards Highwood and actually they're a bit late because Highwood was open for a very short period. It's going to become, we'll do a future podcast about Highwood, but the Indian cavalry there uh, got hammered in the valley that we're looking into below us and uh, and so they're commemorated here, but all of Indian, all the Indian troops are commemorated here, but there's a very specific action that took place with the cavalry charge of the of the Deccan, uh, the Deccan horse. And the 7th Dragoon Guards, they were also a British cavalry regiment, also charged with them. Uh, listeners may have heard me clicking in the background, which was me actually looking up that memorial because I haven't seen it in uh, in the flesh, and so I wanted to check it out. And uh, I do see what, what you mean that it's a it's a novel design, um, but as you say, hope, you know, remembers very brave men, and and, and that's the uh, that's the least we can ask for, especially in an area like this. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, alongside of it, there's a, now a New Zealand memorial as well, a very small one. Um, and uh, there's one in my village that recently arrived. And they're basically just a, a steel plate with the New Zealand fern cut cut through it and uh, commemorating the New Zealand uh, efforts uh, in the area. So that's there as well. So we have this little grouping on this road junction, the Bristol Pals Cross, the Indian Memorial, and another little memorial to the New Zealanders uh, here all in the same location. And not far away, we've got yet another memorial. Tell us about that one, the Piper's Memorial in London. Yep, so we now get walk into the village itself, so we have houses left and right, and uh, we walk down uh, past, uh, uh, or we can see a bar directly in front of us, um, and on our left-hand side, there's the Piper's Memorial. And again, a little controversial. It's an, a big old memorial. It, it's a depiction of a piper climbing out of uh, his trench, going over the parapet, um, pipes playing the pipes, which was, uh, it's not imaginary. It happened uh, very often that they led from the front, the pipers. Um but it's not to everybody's taste. It's, it's actually a, a concrete memorial. Not that it's very obviously concrete, but it is a, a concrete memorial. Um, and it's over life size. And some people like it and some people hate it. And I have to say, I'm sitting on the fence a little bit. I'm about middle middle to diddle, but I'm going slightly to not liking it. It it is it is a large memorial, but it's but it's a worthy memorial to commemorate the Pipers uh, who led their men over. And of course, we automatically think of uh, of the Scots, the Scottish regiments within the British Army. But of course, there were there were Australian battalions who had a um, a, a lot of Scots within them, and so they used pipes. Same with the New Zealanders, um, and uh, some of the Irish uh, battalions used pipes as well. So pipes were were used throughout the uh, the war. Canadians, of course, I should remember. Canadians uh, use the use the pipes a lot, and of course, there's a very famous Canadian who was killed not very far away from here, uh, Piper Richardson VC uh, from the 16th Battalion uh, uh, of the Canadian. Um, uh, uh, infantry and he was uh, killed on the 8th of October so he's one of those that fought in this area in fact sadly he he was lost he became missing um, and was killed when going back for his pipes so at some stage during the fighting he dropped his pipes and he felt he, he couldn't leave them on the battlefield and he was killed trying to retrieve his pipes this memorial again a relatively new one isn't it yeah, it is, yeah, uh, 2002. Um, 105 Pipers, it, it we'll see on the memorial, 105 Pipers uh, uh, were uh, were lost during the war. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a new memorial, but not to everybody Not everybody likes it. Uh, but I, I certainly do. And what's the next stop in our walk, Pete? 
well, we're just going to cross the road, and we're going to cross the road, and uh, here we have an opportunity if you uh, if you would like a, a beer, and uh, it's one of the, there aren't that many bars, you have to say, in rural France on the battlefield any longer, and this is uh, one of them with a rather odd name, Calypso 2 Bar. Um, and that's an interesting little story in its own right. On the other side of the road, there used to be the Calypso One Bar. So there were two bars, one at uh, one side of the road, one at the other, owned by the same owner, uh, Calypso One, Calypso Two. And interestingly, if you were drinking in Calypso Two when it closed, you could then walk across the road and go into Calypso One and carry on drinking there. So it was a rather odd, odd concept. And the, the old uh, uh, landlord, uh, sadly long since dead, John Blondell, um, became a friend uh, over the years. He was the archetypical French landlord, string vest in the summer, cheroot hanging out his mouth with a great long tab of, uh, of ash on, on, the, on the end of it, sitting uh, uh, with a chair the wrong way around, a, a bent wood, wood chair. He was a very large man um, and, uh, yeah, just archetypical French landlord. Uh, so I, I miss him. It was, uh, it was a good fun to go to the uh, Calypso 1 and 2. Uh, but the Calypso 2 still open uh, under different uh, ownership, so well worth going in there and ha- having uh, a pint. Um, and actually, they do sell pints in there because they're used to Brits. Of course, normally it's uh, more of a half, half a pint uh, in France. Opposite, there's the Village War Memorial, which is your standard Village War Memorial. If there is such a thing, it commemorates all the men from the village that uh, went off to the war in 1914 and uh, didn't return. Um, and with an addition for Second World War. And also people that died during the German occupation in, uh, in during the Second World War are also commemorated on these memorials. Um, and also we normally have now a little additional uh, plaque that commemorates people killed in Al- Algeria and some of the French colonial wars as well of the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Um, beside it is something that, that I find very important, uh, interesting rather than important, and it's a, a heavy trench mortar. Um, and that was once located in front of the church, which was really out the way. Nobody ever found it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, this uh, heavy trench mortar is uh, very unusual. Not very many of them survive. So it's, it's nice to see uh, an old uh, uh, British uh, heavy trench mortar there. There's a famous photo of the Australians firing a mortar like this. They used to call it the flying pig, the big, uh, the big bomb that shot out of this. There's a famous photo of the Australians at Pozier firing uh, one of these from the chalk pit, which is a site that we go to whenever we walk around Pozier, and no doubt we will visit on our walk when we do the Pozier's approach march. But uh, I, you know, the the the, uh, the novelty of soldiers, the uh, the humour that always comes through. The bomb was called a flying pig, and it was a 150 pound bomb. It was a it was a big old a big old lump of lump of metal to chuck at the Germans. It was indeed, and uh, actually not fired by the infantry. It was actually controlled by the uh, the artillery because it, this was seen as a, a really a big old uh, uh, weapon. Whereas the light mortars were actually uh, part of the the infantrymen's uh, armaments. But the nine point four nine point four five inch heavy trench uh, mortar was uh, was certainly run by the artillery. Uh, and in fact, uh, for the British, it's the Royal Garrison Artillery that are actually firing it. For those of us who don't have uh, extensive military experience, unlike your good self, Pete, uh, mortars, of course, are small artillery pieces used very close to the front line, a very close support weapon for the infantry. And I tell you what, descriptions that I've read throughout several wars of what it was like to come under mortar fire, absolutely horrific when you're you know, often quite exposed and all of a sudden bombs are landing all around you that are being fired from relatively close in front, um, very nasty experience. 
It's also a rather scary experience because when they reach the top of their trajectory, because they're they fire fairly, they're almost a vertical trajectory. They go up in the air and drop straight down again. Hence, that's why they're good for knocking out trenches because they can actually literally drop into a trench. But it means that as they get to the top of that trajectory, they actually you can see them. So they stop for a minute as they kind of float over, and then start dropping down, and it it makes you feel rather uncomfortable. I've been in firepower demonstrations where they've been firing over the top of me, and to actually to see uh, to see a mortar round uh, just appear just for a second before it starts speeding up again and drops towards you is slightly unnerving to say the least well we're nearing the end of the walk pete what uh, what are the large last couple of sites that we have in uh, in the village of longaval Okay, so what we're going to do now is we'll, we'll, we've uh, walked past the Piper's Memorial and we're heading out of the village. Uh, the village will kill to the right, or the road, sorry, will kill to the right, as does the village, I suppose. Um, and that would take us then through uh, just past the edge of uh, Delville Wood. Well, we're not going to go that way, and onwards that way would take me onwards home. Uh, we're going to climb the ridge and head up to the New Zealand Memorial, which has been visible for most of this walk. The only time we couldn't see it is when we're in the village itself and the houses uh, block our view. But now we can see the memorial again. It's a dead straight road and it's a farmer's road. It's going to lead to the fields, but it also leads up to the memorial, which again has been renovated. I mentioned earlier, the trees have been removed. We now have explanatory panels. So as we're walking up here, we are literally walking across the attack of the New Zealanders. They're going to be going left to right. So they'll be on our left-hand side, crossing over this road, and then as they crested the ridge, uh, they will uh, hit the uh, the switch line, which was a, a defensive position which uh, protected flares and is what the really, I suppose, the objective of this fighting on the 14th uh, of July in 1916. The New Zealanders, as they crested or as they headed to that rise, had to take uh, a position on the left. So it's on the left of this road called Crest Trench for the obvious reason it was almost on the crest. So they went into action really almost before they cleared the top of the ridge and then have this onward uh, struggle to get into the village. It, actually, a very successful attack, the New Zealanders fighting here. They fought all the way through flares within a, a couple of hours. So uh, a, a very successful fighting. And of course, that is the fighting of the tanks. So we are also surrounded by another aspect. And this is the 15th of sep- uh, September when the New Zealanders are attacking. So it's a, a little later than what we've been walking. 15th of September, first use of tanks when those, that's when the New Zealanders attack on the 15th. So it's, we're in an area where the battlefield is really developing. We're bringing in the new technologies uh, here as well. So it's directly in front of us. It's an obelisk. It's always a, a beautiful obelisk. I, I quite like things that are not too fancy, I have to say. And this is a straightforward obelisk, fern leaf uh, uh, emblazoned on the on the front. And those famous words, which always move me, and in fact still do now, but did the very first time I ever visited the battlefields, from the uttermost ends of the earth, uh, engraved on the front of the memorial. And I've always found that v- very moving. Australia's a, a long way away, but New Zealand was even that little bit further and that little bit more remote. And it literally was from the other side of the world. So uh, these soldiers, especially the, the Maoris that were fighting within the division we've mentioned them in a previous podcast but uh, yeah so there were soldiers that uh, who were uh, who were native to New Zealand who didn't have that that background of Europe and that knowledge of Europe as well so from the uttermost ends of the earth always moves me when you read that I love the New Zealand memorials the one at Messine is particularly great looking down over the Messine Ridge where the New Zealanders attacked in 1917 the, the Passchendaele memorial they're, they're always great to see the New Zealand memorials and um, and, and remember our our Kiwi brothers who fought, and and there's no better area to do it than the ground we've just walked across. It's a it's it's hallowed ground for New Zealanders, one of the most important sites on the Western Front for New Zealanders. And um, again, I'm really enjoying Pete doing these. I won't say the word obscure, but these less well known parts of the battlefield. Everyone's going to go to Tiepval. Everyone's going to go to the Newfoundland Memorial Park. Everyone's going to go to the Menin Gate. 
but not a lot of people are going to take the time to walk Longueval and to the New Zealand Memorial. So just been it's been absolutely fascinating. If you, I mean, if you do nothing else, if you don't want to walk or, or do this walk, if you just drive up to the New Zealand Memorial, because you can actually drive your car right the way up to it, there's a parking area at the top. The views from it are spectacular. And it really does help you understand the Battle of the Somme in its entirety, because you know where you've just come from. If you've come from Albert, you've been crossing the battlefield. And what you're looking at, if you look towards my village, the village of Flair, and beyond on the ridge in front of you, that is Bapum, and that is that is where we were trying to get to. That's what the whole Battle of the Somme was about was getting to Bapum and we don't ever get there but you, so you can see an enormous bulk of the battlefield from this uh, from the memorial site uh, uh, one of my favorite places to go I, I'm slightly slightly uh, I suppose uh, uh, I like it more than other sites because I can actually see my house from here so when you stand on the memorial site you can actually look down and I can see my own house so it's but it's a great view it's fantastic well, on that subject as well, certainly check out the walk that Pete and I did many weeks ago uh, through the village of Fleur, which is the village where you live, Pete. And that dovetails very nicely with the ground that we've just crossed here. Both important sites, less well known than some other sites on the Somme, but very important to visit and to remember the men who fought and died here. Pete, as always, it's been wonderful, mate. Thank you so much. Yeah, great. I've enjoyed that. Very, very, very nice indeed. Yeah, good. Uh, looking forward to the next one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.